You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. And we begin with the fight for Mariupol. Russia says over a thousand Ukrainian Marines that were defending the besieged port city have now surrendered. However, Ukraine is saying that its remaining troops in the city have now managed to combine forces. And a video statement posted Tuesday by a member of the Marine unit said that they would hold until the end, quote. We need to point out CNN is not in Mariupol and cannot independently confirm any of these details. Meanwhile, Ukraine's offering Russia a prisoner exchange. President Zelensky says he's willing to turn over Viktor Medvedchuk, the pro-Moscow Ukrainian politician who was detained this week. In return, he's demanding the release of Ukrainian prisoners of war. So far, no response from the Kremlin, which is accused of committing war crimes by France. Yet President Macron stopping short of using the word genocide. President Biden, however, willing to go further. Late Tuesday, he accused Vladimir Putin of trying to wipe out even the idea of a Ukrainian identity. As the Russian leader says peace talks are at a dead end, new satellite images show Russian forces moving east for what's expected to be a major offensive. And CNN teams reporting shelling of residential areas too in Kharkiv. There's new video of what looks like explosions caused by cluster munitions. Their use against civilian targets may amount to war crimes, according to the UN. And earlier Wednesday, President Zelensky accusing Russia of using incendiary phosphorus weapons to try and terrorize the Ukrainian people. Strikes. The residential compounds were decimated by all sorts of rockets and bombs and artillery, in particular the phosphorus bombs and some others bound by international law. This is obvious terror against the civilian population. This is a try to break the spirit of the nation, to conquer the Ukrainians or simply annihilate them. Fred Pikin is in Kyiv for us now. Fred, I want to start by talking about reports from Mariupol. The Ukrainians are saying that their remaining forces there have consolidated and are now working together, but the hold feels increasingly fragile. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It does feel increasingly fragile. But I think uh, one of the other things that we have to keep in mind that it's pretty much a miracle that those Ukrainian soldiers uh, are still actually holding on to Mariupol or actually managing to hold on to a part of Mariupol. It's obviously a city that has been encircled from the very first days of this war where the Russians have been moving in. And it's absolutely impossible to get any new supplies into that area. And what happened uh, during the course of the fighting as more and more Russian forces poured into Mariupol is that the defenders of Mariupol, they were essentially separated from one another. So the Russians managed to drive a wedge between them, move their own forces in there. And now it seems as though, from what the Ukrainians are saying, that those forces have managed to link up, that some of the Marine brigades that the Ukrainian military had in there, they managed to link up with some of the other defenders while it seems as though, from what the Russians are saying, some of the other Marines were then taken prisoner by the Russians. So it seems as though, on the whole, there are fewer uh, Ukrainian forces that are still defending that city, but they have managed to consolidate their position. Of course, they've also acknowledged that they believe um, that, they're polic- that they're not going to be able to hold that position for much longer because they are so low on supplies and because, of course, the Russians have moved so many forces in there. We can see on our screens there uh, some of the uh, destruction in Mariupol. Of course, it is one of the most destroyed city, probably the most destroyed city currently in Ukraine. The Ukrainian government says that tens of thousands of people may have been killed in the fighting. Of course, many others also displaced, but many civilians apparently also still in that city uh, as well as the fighting there certainly does seem to continue, Julia. 
And Fred, you know better than most, I think it's hard to, to look at the scenes that we're seeing there and not respond with an emotional rather than a technical response, mm. as perhaps President Biden did yesterday and call it genocide. French President Emmanuel Macron not willing to go there, but you were one of the first journalists in Tabucha yourself. You've seen evidence of what was left behind, and I know you've also spent time now with the investigators that are collecting evidence of, of so-called war mm. crimes. Talk us through those experiences, Fred. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the most interesting things yesterday that President Biden said is that he believes that this is something that's increasingly amounting to genocide, but he has to wait and to see what the lawyers are going to say. And what the Ukrainians have done is they've launched a massive investigation uh, into war crimes, into crimes against humanity, and now also into possible genocide as well. And I was able to link up with a chief prosecutor who's leading this charge and who also, by the way, says that she really needs to do her best to distance herself emotionally from all this and to make this fundamental, objective, investigative work. And we conducted our interview right at the main mass grave there in Bucha, which is obviously a grim place. And so we do have to warn our viewers that some of what you're about to see is graphic and disturbing. Have a look. Even as Russian troops mass in eastern Ukraine for what the U.S. believes will be a huge offensive, <laughs> authorities in Kiev continue digging up bodies. Painstaking work that goes hand in hand with investigating Russia's attack on Kiev and possible crimes committed by Vladimir Putin's invading troops. <laughs> Prosecutor General Irina Venediktova is leading the charge. She spoke to me at the edge of a mass grave in the Kiev suburb of Bucha. For us, the best motivation is justice. And of course, we understand that all Ukrainians want fast justice, true and fast justice. That's why we do everything to document all evidence, all facts of war crimes that we have here in Ukraine. French forensic investigators are now also on the scene, not because Ukraine lacks expertise, but because Kiev wants to be as transparent as possible in the face of Russian disinformation efforts. We want to do our job absolutely open with standards of international humanitarian law. It's very high standards. That's why when here we have our international colleagues, we understand that they can see everything. They can see real situation here, real graves, real dead bodies. After Ukrainian forces managed to expel Russian troops from around Kiev and some other areas they'd occupied in Ukraine, <laughs> authorities have discovered scores of dead bodies. Today, another six found in just one basement outside Kiev. The prosecutor tells me they are collecting evidence in thousands of cases. Now we started more than 6,000 cases. Uh, it's cases, it's crimes, uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, aggression crimes. And we started on the first days of war, we started the case about genocide. All this as Russia still claims its forces that invaded Ukraine have not harmed any civilians. On a visit to a spaceport with Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko, Russian President Vladimir Putin again claimed his forces are fighting against would-be Ukrainian Nazis in what he calls a, quote, special operation. The goals are absolutely clear and they are noble, he said. I said it from the beginning and want to draw your attention to that.
There are some in the U.S. at the top level who have spoken about a possible war crimes trial against Vladimir Putin. Is that something you think could ever be possible and it's something that you're working towards to provide evidence for? Uh, of course, I think that uh, everyone understands who is responsible for this war. That's why we do everything to uh, fix, to document uh, evidences. But we are here in Ukraine and actually understand who is responsible for all of this. The investigators' work is complicated by the fact that the war is still going on, and they can't reach many devastated areas like the encircled city of Mariupol, where Ukraine's president says tens of thousands have been killed. But Irina Benediktova says no matter how long it takes, she will press on. It's actually extremely important because if we will be successful as a prosecutors, I sure that we can stop such aggressions in the future. So there you have the general prosecutor, Julia. And, you know, just to give you an idea of, of what they're up against, they're obviously collecting this forensic evidence. But at the same time, of course, there is also that very large Russian disinformation campaign. Just to give you an idea of, of some of the things that the Russians have said, they've said that the corpses in Bucha are fake, which is obviously not the case. They've said that when their forces left that area, everybody was still alive and must have been killed by the Ukrainians, even though there's satellite images to prove otherwise, and drone footage, by the way, as well. And yesterday, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin when he was at that spaceport with Alexander Lukashenko, he also said that he believed that all the images coming out of Bucha are absolutely fake. Julia? Mm. Fred Plagin, thank you, as always, for that report. The upshot of all of this, two non-NATO members, Finland and Sweden, edging closer. In a press conference with the Swedish leader earlier today, Finland's prime minister discussed the possibility of applying for membership. We need to have a consensus, we need to have a view on the future, and we are using this, this time um, to analyze and also uh, building uh, common views uh, on the future when it comes to security. Uh, I won't give any uh, kind of timetable uh, when we will make our decisions, but I think it will happen uh, quite fast, uh, within weeks, not within months. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, long-term partners, if not members of NATO, Finland and Sweden, perhaps deciding now that they no longer have the luxury of remaining on the fence where this body is concerned. How close do you think they are to that consensus that the Prime Minister was talking about there? Yeah, Phil... Yeah, I think Finland's very close and Sweden's probably not far behind. Uh, and why do I say that? Speaking to uh, Finnish diplomat earlier this year before Russia's invasion, one of the big takeaways for Finland was just what uh, NATO membership means and what Russia's aggression means. Uh, and, you know, to Finland sitting outside of NATO, although doing many military exercises, partnering with NATO in the past, sitting outside, they realized what Ukraine was going through was a scenario where um, a nation was being attacked by an aggressive neighbor, Russia, uh, but that nation would have to face it alone, even if it aspired to be part of NATO, even if it shared values with other NATO countries, because it's only Article 5 that makes you safe. And, and we heard from both the Finnish prime minister today and the Swedish prime minister saying Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed 
everything. So if you go back to earlier this year when perhaps only a quarter of the population in Finland would have supported membership of NATO, the sense is that that's really changed. And what we've heard from the Finnish Prime Minister today is that after Easter, they'll give this 51-page uh, discussion document to, uh, to the Finnish Parliament. They will expect within weeks to have it concluded. And there's really an expectation here in Brussels and at NATO headquarters that by the time we get to the end of June and NATO's leadership summit, uh, Finland will be asking, and potentially Sweden as well, will be asking to become a full member of NATO. And that is something that's expected uh, to go through fairly easily and fairly swiftly. Everyone here it has the sense that that's in motion. What does it mean for NATO? Significantly, it's going to double its land border with Russia when Finland joins. Finland has almost an 800-mile border with Russia. So there are significant consequences here. Yes, consequences for NATO and for Russia. To, to your point, Nick, I feel if the Ukraine crisis can't convince you, perhaps nothing will. Um, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian government unwilling to host the German president in Kyiv. A mistake, Nick? Whatever the concerns about his relationship with Russia, Ukraine continues and will continue to need Germany. Yeah, President Zelensky and Ukraine's leadership have been really tough on, on people and countries that they feel are causing problems or, or making life difficult for them. We've heard them call in the early stages out President Biden, call out uh, uh, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister. Um, and here this feels and looks like a strange one. Walter Steinmeier, the German president, expected to accompany the, the Polish, uh, Lithuanian, Estonian, Latvian presidents who went to, uh, who, who've gone to Kyiv today. Steinmeier was the foreign minister in Germany, and there seems to be a perception in Kyiv that as foreign minister in Germany previously, he was the one that was sort of responsible for forging closer ties with Russia, Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. But of course, Germany itself has done so much in recent days. It's the first country to take wounded Ukrainian civilians by plane and fly them to Germany for treatment. It's been treating wounded, wounded Ukrainian soldiers in Germany uh, over past weeks. It was slow to offer military assistance, but it's made a massive and fundamental change in its approach to its own security, massively increasing its defense spending and shifting from a position of saying that it would only supply helmets uh, to the Ukrainian forces. It's essentially uh, it's essentially signaled that the Czech Republic can provide M72 tanks to Ukraine that were once uh, in that had once belonged to East Germany. Um, so, yes, and we've heard from, uh, uh, from the uh, Germany's chancellor today, Olaf Scholz, saying he's essentially disappointed. Uh, it, it's irksome, this decision by, by Ukraine to, to essentially say no thank you to the, to the president of Germany going on a visit. Mm. It's a huge shift in terms of sentiment across the EU, but as the Ukrainians keep arguing, it's, it's still not enough. Nick Robertson, thank you for that. Vladimir Putin saying he will find alternative markets for Russia's coal, oil and gas in response to Western sanctions. Meanwhile, economists in Germany warn the country faces a sharp recession if Russian gas supplies are cut off or they choose to cut them off. And the cost, $240 billion. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, very much tied to the conversation I was just having with Nick there. It's not just about the financial cost 
the suggestion from this analysis, too, is the cost of 400,000 jobs. I wonder whether that perhaps gives Olaf Scholz the political cover to avoid an embargo. Well, certainly this report just shows how expensive any kind of energy embargo would be. But what was actually also interesting was just the baseline scenario of no escalation in terms of the economics with Russia. And that already sees Germans, uh, Germany's economy uh, growing at just 2.7% this year. That is a big downgrade from 4.8%, which was the last estimate. And this year they see inflation coming in at above 6%. The other scenario, which really focused just on gas stopping, uh, Russian gas stopping to to Germany, they see GDP coming in at uh, 1.9% this year and a contraction of 2.2% next year. $240 billion being wiped off the economy, hundreds of thousands of jobs. I think you're right. I think when you look at Germany and its resistance so far to any kind of embargo on Russian energy, this gives political cover because it would be hugely expensive to the economy, to the cost of living for everyday people and hundreds of thousands of jobs on the line. One of the best bosses I ever worked for used to say to me, don't come to me with problems of your own creation. Come to me with the solutions. I feel like that applies here. Anna, we'll come back to this. Thank you for that. Anna Stewart there. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. More than 4 million Ukrainians have been forced to flee their homes and seek shelter in foreign countries since the start of the Russian invasion in February. Many of these people face the scary, uncertain prospect of building a new life in an unfamiliar land without friends or family for support. A global business network set up in 2016 to help Syrian and Afghan refugees is now lending its expertise to help Ukrainians in need. The Tent Partnership for Refugees comprises more than 200 large multinational firms who've pledged to hire, train and support refugees in the workplace. Tent Partnership is the brainchild of Hamdi Ulukaya. He's the CEO of Chobani, a US-based food company committed to helping the refugee community since its inception. At one point, around 30% of Chobani's employees were immigrants or refugees. Hamdi Ulukaya joins us now. He's just come back from a visit to the Polish-Ukrainian border. Hamdi, great to have you on the show. You've been simply been at the arrival point for millions of, of you. Ukrainian refugees who've been forced to flee. What was your sense being there? Um, you know, it's it's the same picture um, that I saw um, when I was in the border of Venezuela and Colombia, um, or in the border of Turkey and Syria, or in an island of Greece. Um, this is something that we've been talking about for years, um, this devastation, this human move, without their uh, will, uh, it creates massive amount of tragedy. And I never thought, Juliet, one day I would be seeing this in the heart of Europe. And here we are in the border, uh, same picture. I saw one of the many conversations that you had, I'm sure, a a mother who'd been forced to flee with her six-month-old child can you tell us something about that conversation? I'm sure among many, but it stood out to me. Yeah, so um, this was in a center where uh, UNHCR set up this cash center, which is beautifully, beautifully done. Uh, and I asked the people in that center, I said, how did this happen? Um, and they said, we set this up in one week. Um, and 
what, what, I'll, I'll come to, to the baby. What, what pleased me in that conversation, in that center, Julie, is that they said, well, Hilton provided uh, a place for us to train. Uh, Manpower uh, provided the tra- uh, you know, selection of the people who spoke Ukrainian. Uber provided the cars for the you know, aid workers to come back and forth. And IKEA provided the furnitures. What pleased me is the, the companies, our member companies, are stepping up and playing major role, making this you know, um, help to be provided. In there, you see women and children that on the line and trying to get uh, registered and so they can get uh, some cash. Um, you know, it, it's very, very sensitive in that moment to be able to have a conversation because you know where it's going to land, you know, where it's going to go. Uh, her, her daughter's name was Polina. She is nine months old, uh, a single mother, and she left, uh, they left their dad behind. And, you know, of course, children are children. They're beautiful, they're innocent, uh, whatever they are. Mother, you can tell it's, her heart is, is filled with worries and you know uncertainty um what she wants to go back what she wants to go back to her dad and the mother wants to go back to her husband um the lady who was translating to me she came to me after and said i'm so glad that you didn't ask many hard questions even though she was translating for me her family was also in ukraine and her dad doesn't want to leave the town that they lived, and they are on the eastern part of Ukraine. And what you see there is the translator or the mother with children or people who are helping. They are all going through the same emotions of what is going to happen today to my family. And, of course, the biggest concern is what happened to my country. I mean, you've described it there, and this is the the power of what you've created in the Temp Partnership, which is these big companies at every stage of the process of being a refugee, just rebuilding your life in the first few days to rebuilding a future, getting the stability that a job provides, which I know is is so powerful to you. Just explain the Temp Partnership, because it's not just about Ukraine. It's been Afghan refugees and Syrian refugees, to your point, too. So this has happened when I started Chobani, you know, in upstate New York. Mm. And when hired everyone in our local community after the factory was closed, I hit a little town called Utica, and they said there are refugees from all around the world settled here legally, and they're having a hard time finding a job. And when I asked the question, I said, what is the problem? And they said, it's the language. They don't speak the language. Uh, They don't have the training, and they don't have driver license and cars to drive to the work. And I thought those, was, those were very simple, very simple problems to solve. Uh, we rented buses, we got translators, and we trained them inside the, our plants. At some point, we have 30% of our workforce, uh, refugees from 19 different countries, 16 different languages is spoken. Um, and same thing happened in, in Idaho, but I never thought this was work for refugees. I thought this was a community work. People in the community, they are eager to work, they have right to work, and, you know, providing and, and removing some obstacles to be able to be, able to be part of a community. Mm-hmm. When the Syrian uh, crisis happened, 
I went to Switzerland to meet with UNHCR. I went to all the NGOs. And what I realized that the companies and CEOs and entrepreneurs are not involved is one of the most uh, crucial humanitarian crises that we're facing today. Millions and millions of people are in despairing camps and out of society, out of community, absolutely out of the workforce. And looking at my own experience and saying, the minute they get a job, that's the minute they stop being a refugee. I saw people, you know, develop life for themselves, be part of community. And I saw in my own experience at Chobani how much they provide to my company. Um, and I thought sudden intent in 2016 with the idea of if companies provide jobs, training, helping them wherever they are using their supply, supply chain, that these people who are in stuck environment to root job, they can be unstuck. Um, it was hard work in the beginning. Of course, I did not have a lot of companies wanted to come up and be uh, part of this effort. But looking back now, over 200 companies and looking at the border, the Ukrainian border, how companies are stepping up. And here, for the Afghani refugees or the incoming Ukrainian refugees, when we have the CEO, uh, you know, Council uh, for Refugees, we have come a long way and we still have a long way to go. But if I look at this particular refugee issue all around the globe, companies and CEOs have massive role to play. This is yes. the only way we can make, make a difference. I think your point there was crucial that you don't stop being a refugee just because you've got somewhere safe. Actually, you become and stop being a refugee when you have some sense of stability, a home, a job and can sort of make roots in the place where you've ended up. Um, I want to ask you because the ethos of your company, too, was about providing better quality food to those that need it. Um, and what we, we're looking at now is a food crisis for some of the poorest parts in the world. And it's been dramatically exacerbated by the war in Ukraine because of their importance in certain agricultural products. Can I ask you what you're seeing and how concerned are you by rising input prices, inflationary pressures, particularly in food? Um, this is such an important topic. Um, you know, let's talk about food inside Ukraine. You know, we're talking about 4 million people moved. They are in Poland. I have to tell you, Julie, this Polish people and the Romanians and Slovakians and Moldovians, the way that they reacted to, to, to the na their neighborhood, neighboring people's need is unbelievable. They are in their homes, welcomed. I don't see tents on the streets. I don't see camps on the streets. Uh, we have to point out that this is one of the most beautiful sites I have ever seen. Inside the Ukraine, there are more IDPs. And those people moved from the east side of the country or Kiev to the west, and that's creating uh, food insecurity. Now, globally, you know, we know, you know, a lot of food is produced in Russia and, and Ukraine for the world market. For some estimates, uh, 30 million people and some estimates some more will be in the urge of hunger this year around the world, just simply because of rising prices or inability to get food, especially wheat and, and, and oil. So this is the biggest alarming food issue we're going to have in the recent history globally. We, we're going to talk about hunger or death from hunger if we don't react right now. And if you look at the World Food Programme, um, they're taking the food from needed one to the starving ones, already started. So this is right. uh, alarming. 
for the food pricing globally, especially on the West, I think we're going to see effects. We already see effects. I'm worried about the farmers. Uh, I was just upstate uh, yesterday and talking to some of the farmers when it comes to fertilizers. Um, I think the supply of fertilizer is there, price is high, and that is going to affect you know, uh, the, the price and furthermore. I think on the West side of the world, where we are in Europe uh, and some other countries, we'll manage it through it. I'm not really worried. What I'm worried the most is right. people in need when it comes to Africa, Northern Africa and, 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 and Eastern uh, part of the world where they need essential food and ability to get them. Yeah, those are the, the nations that we need to support. Hamdi, great to have you on. Thank you for all the work that, that you and your partners Thanks are doing. So much. The CEO Thank of Jirani and founder of the Tent Partnership for Refugees. Thank you, sir. Welcome back. Ukraine offering Russia a prisoner exchange. President Zelensky says he's willing to turn over Viktor Medvedchuk, the newly detained ally of Vladimir Putin. In return, he's demanding the release of Ukrainian prisoners of war. So far, the Kremlin has not responded. Meanwhile, military officials say a Russian missile strike damaged an apartment block in Donetsk, leaving seven people injured. And as the war continues, talent is starting to leave Russia as sanctions make it harder to run an international business. One Moscow-based couple with family in Ukraine decided to get out just days after the invasion began. Nikita and Valentina Blanc are the founders of Hey Everyone, offering a way to automate investor communications. They began work while still in Russia, but say they were never planning to incorporate there. Nikita and Valentina Blanc join us now. Welcome to you both and thank you for joining the show. Nikita, talk to me first. The beauty of this day and age is that you can run an international business from anywhere because a lot of it's remote. But three days into the invasion, you decided you both, you and your family, had to leave Moscow. Talk to me about that decision. Why? Uh, Julia, thanks for having us. Um, well, that was that was a, a very emotional decision. You know, um, at a certain point, we felt like the bo- we already hit the bottom. But, you know, each new day brought us something new in terms of bottoms. And um, we just thought that we can't, you know, run the business in in a calm and safe place. So we decided to uh, run it from somewhere else. And that, you know, that was important because that was the moment when we started running things. And Valentina, it's, it's personal for you because... Half of your family is Ukrainian. They're, they're still there. It's on your father's side. How are your Ukrainian family doing? Uh, yeah, Julia, thank you for having us. Um, my gut feeling is that we are going through a tough time. And uh, human psyche, as you know, has three options, uh, stand, fight, or, or run. And uh, at first I felt like I'm frozen. Uh, there is... Um, uncertainty all over the place you have no idea of what's going on and my hopes of tensions fading evaporated soon and uh, so we decided to move on with our lives and move and i'm a half ukrainian and uh, my relatives uh, live uh, in ukraine they are spread across different locations like Kharkiv, kiev and others and we also have our family house uh, that we got from our great great grandmother. Uh, at some point, our relatives called and told us about this uh, situation, and 
their city near Kiev has been under military actions. Long story short, they went heading to our family house and took their friends and sisters, the youngest of them, by the way, three old, three years older, like my daughter. Yeah, and um, all of the 25 people were hiding. Pretty terrifying. In the house. Pretty terrifying for you. I can hear it in your voice. Um, Nikita, what about the family that you left in Russia? What are they saying to you about what they think's going on? Do they understand? Well, um, you can't blame people for being in a certain informational bubble. Um, so, like, Older generations, they tend to watch TV and due to the fact that all of the independent media was simply blocked in the country, the only source of information is, you understand. Um, so like, this is their source of information. This is how they understand things. And they're not really able to read Western media. They're not able to read, um, uh, Ukrainian media as well, or any independent media. So uh, communication-wise, it's like a tough call. Um, but you know, we're, you're, we're we're trying to we're trying to find our common spots and talk about thing things that we both love. And uh, you know, right now the most important thing for all of us is that everyone stays safe. And uh, you know, there, there's no military reactions. That's the most important thing. Do you, do you think you'll ever go back to Moscow, Nikita? Because as you said, you, you were looking to incorporate your company in the United States anyway. Is it possible to build a thriving digital or tech company in Russia even before this? Does it feel pretty impossible now given all the economic constraints and the political constraints um, too, let's be clear? Yeah, well, you know that... Um it's not our first company that we're doing, right? And mm. previously we had another company that we were building that was called Challenge App. We were actually number four top popular app in the United States back in 2020. Uh, and uh, funny enough, after we left Taiwan in 2017, we were running that company from Russia. And uh, despite of the fact that our team was totally decentralized, we were like spread across the world, including United States, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Thailand and other countries that that, you know, that didn't feel impossible that we could run an international business because that was a very, very, very cool place to live. Um, but right now, what I'm hearing from VCs and currently we're we're building um, mostly in a U.S.-based company because we're starting with U.S. clients. So we're fundraising in the U.S. Um, what I'm hearing is that they don't want to, you know, have anything attached to Russia in their portfolio. And this is totally understandable. You couldn't expect uh, a, a, a U.S.-based VC to invest into a, a Russian-based company. That never happened before. I never heard about this before. So uh, to us, it's not something new. It's just that we physically have to be uh, someplace else. Yeah, because it's become so toxic to have anything to do with Russia or Russian investment of, of any kind. Um, we're going to continue this conversation about your business, which is fascinating in of itself. But I, I do want to talk about your family because you have a beautiful daughter, Eva. You're now in Georgia. I'm sure 
in the beginning, as I've heard from many Russians around the world, they were afraid perhaps of what the reception would be. How has the reception been to you there? And she's absolutely beautiful, by the way. We've got some some other pictures of her too. Um, thank you. Uh, well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> reception. Uh, I don't know. I don't really don't really know what to say. It's like it's Georgia is one of the most welcoming countries. Yeah, there was a really warm welcome. For Super us. warm. Um, yeah, because we do have relatives here in Georgia as well, and you know we're, we're not not to say that we're we're famous but you know people local people do know us and uh they they understand that we're totally you know international folks that we you know have nothing to do with uh, uh the situation that goes on right now and uh we however you know understand that people are are concerned about the way things are and so we're not trying to be pushy or anything we're just you know trying to be super friendly to everyone and yeah we're 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 also we're also very very thankful and grateful for people being so welcome and supportive and by the way uh, a lot of uh, international entrepreneurs uh, uh, they help local people to work and they make some startups uh, like we made with the uh, uh, with the local people and uh, try to help them. Yeah, we actually managed to make yeah. another startup here <laughs> in Georgia. <laughs> Guys, it's good to see a happy story amongst a lot of sadness. And um, Valentina, our hearts are with your family. We pray they stay safe. Guys, we'll talk again soon. Nikita and Valentina Blanc there. Thank you, guys. We're back after this. Thank you. Welcome back with a look at some of the stories making headlines around the world. A massive manhunt is underway to find a person who shot 10 people on a New York City subway on Tuesday morning. The shooter set off a smoke grenade and opened fire amid the confusion that followed. Police have identified a 62-year-old suspect who had posted videos online talking about mass shootings. Joining us now from Brooklyn is CNN's Jason Carroll. Jason, the key word change there, I believe, is suspect now rather than a person of interest. What more do we know about the manhunt? Well, you're absolutely right. It was uh, just a few hours ago this morning when folks in New York City woke, woke up. Uh, James uh, Frank James, 62 years old, was identified as a person of interest. The NYPD, New York City Police Department, changed the language on that uh, within the past hour. He is now being named as a suspect and that he is the man responsible for the shooting which occurred out here yesterday. Investigators say they found uh, s several key items that were linked to Frank James, including keys to a rental U-Haul van. That U-Haul van found not too far from where I'm standing right now. Uh, that U-Haul van rented in Philadelphia. Apparently, James has addresses in not only Philadelphia, Julia, but also Wisconsin as well. Investigators also taking a very close look at James' social media. Some of the things that he posted, disturbing videos that he posted on YouTube, for example, on Monday, just one day before the shooting, where he talked about wanting to kill people. Uh, in earlier social media posts, he talked about violence, he talked about mass shootings, uh, the homelessness population here in New York City, and also mentioned New York City Mayor Eric Adams by name. Uh, Eric Adams speaking to CNN, saying that social media companies need to do more to protect the public. 
you look at how we're using social media right now uh, to put threats out there, carry out dangerous actions, and there are clear correlations between what's being posted and what's being carried out in our streets, in this case and in many other cases. Part of the job is receiving threats. I get threats from time to time, not only in the role as a mayor, as a state senator, as a bar president, even as a police officer. Uh, I have uh, a great deal of confidence uh, in the law enforcement uh, officers that are around me. Again, at this point, uh, in terms of the investigation, Eric Adams saying that uh, police are still following up on a number of leads. The U.S. Marshals has joined the manhunt for Frank James, along with the NYPD, the FBI, as well as the ATF, and, uh, as well as a number of other agencies as well. And again, Frank James, no longer a person of interest. He is now officially the suspect. Julia. Jason Carroll. Great to have you with us, sir. Thank you. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has apologised for breaching a COVID lockdown in 2020 when he attended a Downing Street gathering. He says he's paid a £50 fine imposed by the police, but he wouldn't say if he would resign for breaking the rules. US banking giant JP Morgan said today its profits fell more than 40% in the first quarter as the war in Ukraine pressured global business. The results came in weaker than Wall Street had expected. CEO Jamie Dimon warning that he sees, quote, significant challenges for the US economy due to the war, as well as the effects of stressed supply chains and persistently high inflation. U.S. stocks, meanwhile, moving, as you can see, higher in the trading session, even after the release of another red-hot inflation number. Prices at the factory gate rising by more than 11% year-over-year in March. That's the sharpest monthly jump on record, bucking that trend, as you can see, the handover from Europe, where stocks are lower, the Zetrodax, the underperformer. Now, the fight against misinformation, pro-Russian sentiment is being exposed online in China. A number of images from popular social media sites in China have been translated and posted on Twitter, including a prominent military blog falsely claiming the Russian attack on a train station in Kramatorsk was carried out by Ukraine. The anonymous translators say their goal is to raise awareness about the true state of public opinion in China. David Culver joins us on this. Public opinion in China or government opinion in China? David, we can debate this. The message from the anonymous Twitter expose account suggesting that China's not neutral in this war. Right. And I think if you're trying to get an idea as to where the Chinese public sits with all of this, Julia, I mean, you have to realize it's it's heavily nuanced because, I mean, certainly state media echoes the Kremlin and they've been doing that now for some time, simply regurgitating a lot of the propaganda that's come out of Russia and putting it into the airwaves here. But anecdotally, folks you talk with, they stand on all different sides of this. However, more recently, I can tell you it's been overtaken by the massive COVID surge that folks have been dealing with here. So they're not as focused on it. Nonetheless, this is an interesting case uh, that we're looking at here. I mean, Western audiences getting this rare glimpse into the Chinese Internet as anonymous Twitter users are exposing that nationalism, that pro-Russian sentiment that has been circulating online here. And so they're using these screen grabbed posts from China's most popular social media platforms, translating them and then putting them on Twitter, which, as we well know, is banned here in China. Among those posts, you mentioned one of them, a prominent military blog falsely claiming that the Russian attack on uh, the train station was actually carried out by Ukraine. There's also one uh, with a well-known media commentator dismissing the atrocities in Bucha. And there's a post from a vlogger with hundreds of thousands of followers using a misogynistic term for Ukraine. 
So who's behind it? Well, the posts appear courtesy of anonymous Twitter users. They say their aim is to expose the Western audiences to this true extent of pro-Russian or nationalistic content on China's heavily censored platforms. The posts often come under the hashtag the Great Translation Movement. An administrator behind some of the posts tells CNN that the movement was a response of sorts to China's alleged hypocrisy and portraying itself as neutral on Ukraine, even while Chinese state media and social media circulated all these pro-Russian narratives. All of this is not going over well with Beijing. China's state media has lashed out against what it considers to be cherry-picked content. Now, outside China, you've got media experts who warn the post don't really show a holistic view of public opinion in China but could still be useful in shining a light on these elements of China's media sphere. The Great Translation Movement administrator said that they hoped the movement could help push Beijing to really just tone down the rhetoric on these platforms, Julia, so that there would be, in their view, more room for more voices. Yeah, but David, within that, and thank you for that report, is a very important point, which is the focus on COVID and the lockdowns and the challenges the country faces on that is also a dominating factor on, uh, on social media too. Right. David Culver, yeah, thank you for that. Now, and finally, a monster comet is heading our way, but thankfully it won't come close enough to hit Earth. NASA's Hubble telescope spotted this giant flying through space. It's about 100,000 times greater than the mass of a typical comet. It will be nearest to the Earth by 2031. Yes, you heard me right. But NASA defines near as about 1.6 billion kilometers away, which is just shy of a billion miles. So we're not worrying just yet. Thank goodness for that. That's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.